You know, we laugh a little and cry a lot at the church scandals, you know, church ministry scandals when they break out. Uh, we laugh at the prosperity gospel preachers as they make a case for why they need a new private jet. And we kind of wonder, I don't know if you do, but I wonder if maybe they'd be willing to give me a ride when I needed it, right? How do I make a reservation on one of our uh, private jets like that? Um, but we cry about the abuse and cover-ups and highly guarded responses intended to shift blame and play the victim, right? The general public does not trust the word of God, but even less the word of a, a pastor. Is it really the case that preachers just talk a good game, but their lives don't walk the walk? Is Sunday morning just another lecture of do as I say, not as I do? Well, I'm going to have to leave that to you to judge, especially in my case. But I do commit to you that my life is an open book. You can ask me or my wife any question about our pattern of life together. And I just offer that to you. But uh, the Apostle Paul, in his final missionary journey, opens his heart to uh, those that he loves. And he gives them a challenge to imitate him as he has lived among them. And this is our example as well. So let's take a look at our passage today. In Acts 20, verse 13 through 16, the first part of it here, it says, But going ahead to the ship, the travel group sailed for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Uh, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, lovely island cruise. We could spend much time talking about that. We could uh, get travel tips, you know, where to eat, where to, where to sip some tea or coffee. But, but mostly it's, I think we want to focus on the idea that he's, his, his face was set toward Jerusalem, a lot like Jesus was uh, when he headed toward his crucifixion, right? Uh, hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of three major Jewish holidays where every male was supposed to come to Jerusalem, if at all possible, come and be a part of the festival. And of course, for the early church and the church today, Pentecost had deep and abiding significance, right? That was the outpouring of the Spirit. That was the, the start of the church. I want to connect some dots for you for the purpose of enticing you to read some more of Paul's letters to the churches. You may recall from the letters that make up most of the New Testament that he went through the churches of, in Asia and Greece or Achaia and Macedonia, taking up a collection for the poor Jerusalem church. They were undergoing very difficult times, and Paul was very focused on bringing them a gift. We see this in his letters to Corinth very explicitly. Corinth was in, in Greece. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 9. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, you know, those other ones, 
so you also are to do. So on the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to just see you now and just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay, so you see this collection for the saints, this desire to get to Pentecost, to Jerusalem. And you get a little flavor of his work from here to here and and what the missionary journeys must have been like as he stepped into one church and another. Now, in in what we call, it's called 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There was a lot of correspondence between Corinth and Paul, but this is what we call 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. I'd like to read that to you as well. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace or the gift of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, Corinth is in Greece, just above that is Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, these Macedonians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. (laughs) Catch that. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, this collection of the gift. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. See, he's putting some pressure. Well, the Macedonians don't have much. You do have much. I want to prove your love genuine as well. You see, there's a there's some rhetoric going on, some subtle persuasion. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what kind of gift he gave, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and that you should be burdened, 
but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack, right? The bread from heaven, man, amazing. But you can see the subtle pressure campaign on these wealthy Corinthians in response to the poor Macedonians. So we can see on, on Pentecost, the day that the multi-ethnic, spirit-filled Jesus community was born. On this day, that on the Feast of Pentecost, in the middle of the harvest, Paul intended to celebrate with a gift of financial first fruits collected from the Gentiles to give to the poor church in Jerusalem. And Paul brought with him the fraternal first fruits as well. So the financial first fruits and the fraternal first fruits, the first fruits of the Gentile church, the people of the harvest along with the harvest, right? The, the first fruits is the, is the part of the harvest that you bring and give back to God in thanksgiving for the great harvest that is to come. And so he brings a financial first fruit, a fraternal first fruit, at the same time. You'll remember earlier in this chapter some names of those traveling with him, guarding the cash box likely and preparing to present it. Acts 20 verse 4 listed them. Sopater the Berean son of Pyrrhus accompanied him and, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Right, a little bit from all of these different churches accompanying the gift to bring to Pentecost. And, and the intention is likely to offer a gift that binds the Gentile church to the Jewish background church, uh, to, to bind them together and calm the curiosity about the mixed nature of a circumcision neutral family of God, that the church, both Jew and Gentile backgrounds, one people of God. At least that's the intention. As he heads toward Pentecost, face set toward Jerusalem, as he's been dealing with the Macedonian church and the, the Corinthian church, and now he's talking to the Ephesian church. I just have a pesky pastor question. It's poorer Christians often beg to give. Do wealthy Christians need to be begged? Does there need to be a pressure applied to wealthy Christians, or can they see the example of, of those who are poor and get with it, that the abundance may fill the need so that when you have a need, their abundance may take care of it. We have all sorts of connections around the world, let's say Philippines and in Haiti specifically for our church, and we're over, overwhelmed by the little that we can offer them and then the great abundance that they share with the poor. So generous compared to, compared to us, really. The next section of this passage is Paul's third and final speech recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. We have a Jewish audience on his first mission in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. That's Acts 13, 16 through 41. And then we have a Gentile audience in Greece at, at Athens, the Areopagus. That's Acts 17, 22 through 31. And that's his second mission. And now this Miletus address 
at the end of his third mission was to a Christian audience. So allow me to read the next part and then we'll dissect it. Acts 20, 17 through 27. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that is profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There's more to this speech that we'll pick up next week. Let's just go back to the top, verse 17. You yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all, what, humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, right? He was a Jew himself, but there were Jews who opposed his ministry and, and caused all sorts of trials, persecution among, uh, among the people of God. And Paul is saying, you know, he's, I've spent years with you and, and we've gone through some really rough stuff together. He's taken the, the full impact of it, but they're going to receive it as well. So what kind of effect does that have on Paul and on his brothers and sisters? We read in Acts 20, verse 1, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Uh, the uproar, of course, was great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and the, the crowd being just enraged and ready to tear Paul and his people apart. But he sends for the disciples and encourages them, brings courage. And when he'd gone throughout those regions in Macedonia and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece and to Corinth. So all this talk of encouragement, giving courage, lending courage. You don't have courage, you can have some of mine. It was, it was related to the pressure and the persecution that they are facing now and that they will be facing even as after Paul leaves. Right? The pressure and the persecution. You're starting to feel it as well, I'm sure. They need strength, fortification, right? in the face of the pressure in their city. Comfort, literally with strength, come fort <laughs> together. Sometimes the pressure is too much to bear. 
I'll say this, sometimes the pressure is too much to bear for, for many Christians, more than they can handle. And sometimes it's, it is more than you can handle. I'd like to address the common notion you might find on a Christian coffee mug or an Instagram post that says, God will not give you more than you can bear. You might have heard that from a caring friend who says, wow, God must know you're really strong. And that's why he gave you so much to carry right now. Okay, I'm thinking about that. Well, the implication is that you're strong enough. You got this. And you can get through this. And that God will never push you past your limits in life's circumstances. Well, uh, what do you think about that? I, I think God does push us past our limits. right? A, a verse used to fortify this thought that God will not give you more than you can bear comes from the letter to Corinth, <laughs> of all places. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has taken you or overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That's a beautiful promise, right? Temptation is one of those areas that God is committed to seeing you through, to giving you a way out. There is an escape route every time. How do I, where, God, what have you set so that I can get through this? Where is the escape route you have planned? In temptation. He, he doesn't tempt you to sin and and tempt you to pursue a path other than the way of Jesus. But even just adding a little bit of context, like the verse before and the verse after, will show us that this is not about just the struggles of life and the betrayals and the pressure for speaking of Jesus in a culture that wants you to stay silent. You don't have to look far in the Christian chronicles, you know, the the news of the persecuted church, to find people that were killed for their faith. Do you think being killed for your faith is more than you can bear? It's officially all the way to the end of what you can bear and then a little bit more, isn't it? It's death. But the reason they were killed for their faith is because they did not give up their allegiance to Jesus. Maybe the ultimate temptation for which God provides ample strength and encouragement in the Spirit. Right, so let's just read a verse before and a verse after on this very famous verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will... With the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Oh, this is the context. Interesting. Pursuing some other path than Jesus. God will give you a way out. So God does push us past our limits, but will not allow the temptation to idolatry be without an escape route to maintain your allegiance to Jesus. So let's take another run at, at verse 17. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And this is not Asia 
um, as we consider it today, but the Roman province of Asia, which would be in that western part of Turkey. So we're not talking about Thailand at this point. From the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Hmm. How deep and dark and difficult was this? The humility, the being humbled, the tears, the trials. Let's listen in to Paul writing about these trials and God's abundant strengthening. The come fortin, the fort together, the fortification. In his letter to Corinth, the second one, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, King Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in, at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, the, the Greece area. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. <laughs> For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, it's true, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Right? With strength, comfort. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Right, you're catching this, right? Mutual comfort, mutual encouragement, trials, humility, tears, and comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. God won't give you more than you can bear. Paul says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. <laughs> wow. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Isn't that beautiful and difficult? So here's a takeaway. God does push us past our limits to his unlimited strength. Right? God does push us past our limits into his unlimited strength and comfort, right? With strength. And the Ephesian elders also needed to remember in Acts 20, 20, 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So at the hall of Tyrannus, we heard that he set up daily teaching. But then in house church, upon house church, upon house church, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus, the King, Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I have some pesky pastor questions for you. What is the race you are in, specifically? What's the course that you are on? What is it you've been called to and tasked with? How would you know if you've been faithful to it? What, what are the measurables? Are, are you just trudging along, waiting for heaven? Do you dream of clarity about your calling, or do you try to avoid it? Do you, do you want help? <laughs> That's what the family of God is for. Talk to me. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. I'll say for myself, I've had remarkable clarity, even if maybe, let's say, limited fruitfulness and faithfulness for the last dozen years. I've known since 2010 that my calling, Aaron Bauer, is to multiply disciple makers to all nations. Multiply disciple makers to all nations. That's my goal. That's the course. That's my calling. And sometimes that works well with my role as a pastor and preacher. And sometimes people are just annoyed by that. Let's just be honest, right? Why can't you be like other pastors? <laughs> why can't you just settle down and stay the course? Why do you have so many ideas? And why do you always want to keep moving and your energy exhausts me. Well, it's okay. It's because I have a goal that informs my role. A goal that informs my role. I have a calling on my life. This is what I'm called to do. And however God wants me to do that, I, I will do that. Acts 20, 25 through 27, as we close this part of the speech, he says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. 
Okay, I've told you what you need to know. I've given everybody the message of the gospel of grace. I have preached King Jesus. I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of all. We know that about Paul. He did not shrink back. He, he, would, he would go places that his friend said, don't go, right? Well, I want us to think about this. He's been preaching, proclaiming the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God, the king and his domain. King Jesus and his domain. And I want you to think about this. The kingdom is much bigger. It's worldwide, first of all. And it's much bigger than your religious political concerns. But it does include them. You know, said, in a, said a different way, uh, the Bible wasn't written so that... Um, you could have racial justice in Western civilization. That's not why the Bible was written. But it sure informs it, doesn't it? The Bible wasn't written against abortion. But it sure includes it, doesn't it? But the whole counsel of God, the story of the kingdom of God, the placement of every piece of our lives under the authority of Jesus is the important picture, right? King Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all, has been declared among you. And the Spirit has enabled the growth in Christ-likeness among you. Paul says, you're not going to see my face, but you have my legacy. It's a different kind of presence, isn't it? You won't have my face, but you will have my legacy. Because you know how I lived among you. And that's the example. Paul says, my example is to be followed. Do as I say, not as I do. No, Paul says, do as I did. Just look at the pattern. He would say the same thing to the church in Philippi. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In, in this speech to the elders at Miletus, as Tom Wright says, he is showing them in the only way he can what following Jesus looks like. As he says to the Philippians, and which pastor among us would have the courage to say this to those who knew him or her well? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. That's Philippians 4, 9. Hmm. As you think to last week and the challenge to ask, who is pouring into you and to, into whom are you pouring? I want you to think about this pesky pastor question. Is your life worthy of imitating? Is your way of following Jesus worthy of imitating? Now, we all are growing in many different areas of our relational life, and our financial life, and our family life, and our spiritual life, and on and on, right? I mean, I, I'm 
been I've been pretty open about that I'm I've been seeing a therapist for the last year to process grief in my life and to interact with people differently and to learn to desire and to learn to want and and so you could use that as an example but but I'm not saying that every aspect of my life has just been oh yeah perfect right no nobody's claiming no, none of us are going to claim to be the full package right but are you willing to let other people look at your life and would you be willing to share what you know? One of the best questions, I mean this, one of the best questions you could ask some brother or sister in the church, the best question to stimulate Christ-likeness among us, in you and in them, is this. Would you teach me how you follow Jesus in this area? Would you teach me how you follow Jesus in this area? You know what would happen if someone asked you that. Would you teach me how to follow Jesus? You'd be like, whoa, could you give me a, a week and I'll think about that and I'll get my life in order so I have something to present, right? It's a great spiritual discipline to seek out someone that's poor to pour into you, to look at the manner of their life. And then that gives you a chance to pour into other people as well so that you can do as I do. You sense that? So ask that question. Find some people. Would, would you teach me how you follow Jesus? Someone you look up to and say, wow, they, have, they know how to pray. They sure know how to study their Bible. They sure know how to give. They're very generous. They're a wealthy Christian that never has to be begged to give. Like, look at the way. I need to know how to do that. Would you teach me how to follow Jesus in this area? It's a great question to stimulate Christ-likeness. So as we grow, and we're growing. Uh, becoming like Christ, we'll need the whole counsel of God the Father. Right? We're, we're pouring into his word. We're going through it passage by passage. We need the whole counsel of God the Father, the, the filling of the Spirit, the communion of the saints, so that we can transparently ask one another and ask the world to examine the life where we live among them and taste and see that the Lord is good.